0: Welcome
1: to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. and We are the co-founders and owners of
0: Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we're talking with Julie Lithcott-Hames, author of How to Raise an Adult. It's an exploration of how overparenting impacts our teenagers. And her most recent book that is a guide for young adults, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. We are so excited to chat with her, but before we do that, we're gonna talk about how we did as parents. How'd you do, Steph? It's a moving target, Sue.
1: <laughs> it really is. I have, you know, it's like, uh, it's a tale of two cities. I have moments of greatness and moments of suckiness, if that is a word. I, and I don't even think I have anything in between. I don't even. that's actually pretty funny. I think it's pretty binary. I'm sitting here thinking about it. I don't think I have any middle
0: ground. So people say frequently, how are your kids doing? And I always have a hard time answering that question because they're fine. They're good. And then you get a phone call and they're crying. And it's like, oh, well, let me go back to that person that I said, they're, they're great. They're doing great. And go like, ah, uh, they seem to be terrible right now. I- it is a moment by moment, both on evaluating someone else and how they are, because we don't have an, a, like a window into their brain or heart. And then also kind of like the other side of it of parenting them is always this recalibrating. So saying, well, I'm not going to do that for you. But then another time thinking they seem really overwhelmed and I would help a friend do that. Yeah, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I help you? It's so ironic you just said that because
1: I I was walking the dog before we were recording this. And I ran into our photographer, whom I have not seen in a long time, but as I was walking the dog and I had texted Hannah and said, oh, I'm going to be a few minutes late because I was, I stopped to talk to her and she said, how are the kids? And I said, the kids are good. They're bad. They're everything. I was like, they're great between texts. So I just said, that's exactly right because
0: it is a moment in time. It's so crazy. And you have five, you have five, so many moments. Yeah. And and also, like, we don't really do that with other people. We do a more casual kind of how are you. And we don't do this like, really, how are you every time we see somebody. So when people want to check up on how our kids are doing, which is such a lovely question to ask, it's kind of a little bit hard to answer unless unless it's very concrete. Like, what are they doing? Or, you know, like something like that. I'm much more um, comfortable answering that because it's (laughs) fact based. But when it comes to my kids, I think, number one, five was a lot to micromanage. So I don't know. I think they would agree with me. Actually, I think they found it irritating that I didn't do more. (laughs) They weren't like, my mom stepped in and did everything for me. Like, my mom, yeah, she didn't do my laundry. She sometimes didn't make dinner. I think that that would be their version. Like, it would would have been nice to have a little bit of a helicopter mom. (laughs) Did the discontent go up as the
1: as the birth order went down? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Was there more involvement at the beginning? Like, would would numbers four and five have a very different story than one and two? In terms
0: of involvement, in terms of involvement. I don't know the answer to that, actually. I think I was probably most involved with the first one. I don't know that it, like, got less and less and less. Yeah. God, I can't answer that question. I will say that in some ways more involved and in some ways less involved. So, like, the older kids were annoyed that I didn't, do enough that we didn't, you know, they would, they would come home and they would start telling my youngest what to do. And um, I remember saying to my older son one time, like, you know, you're not the parent. And his response was someone should be. So, you know, but what I, but we, what we learned because it is an apprenticeship. And so we got better at it is not to focus on some of the dumb things we focused on with the older kids, but to be much more focused on some of the things that we knew really mattered to us. So, I would say it flip-flopped what where we put our energy, but maybe oh. but not visibly to other people. Yeah, that's good. That's well said. Yeah,
1: that's well said. I, it's funny, Betsy, when I Betsy Jules' podcast that I was on, I was saying something, I had an epiphany while I was on the podcast that because I haven't fully flushed this out, but I think because we have 5 years from top to bottom and you have more year, right? You have, Are you 11, top to bottom? Yeah. Okay. And so as we were parenting the third one, the first one, and the second, obviously, but we had more time to look at the first and how things played out and had a little bit, it's not that we were different parents, but we could had the benefit, you know, how many times do we say, oh, I wish I had a crystal ball, I wish I had a crystal ball. But we had the benefit of seeing that maybe those things weren't so as important as we thought they were. And so like what you're saying, able to focus on different things and let some things go and, and different kids, but you do get a little bit of the benefit of seeing what's coming around the pike.
0: I think the reason for doing this well was that there was too much going on, but the benefit was that it turned out to be really good parenting. Well... At at least I would say that and they probably wouldn't, but they had to navigate so much on their own. So Mm -hmm. like someone said to me the other day, you really let your kids become who they wanted to become. And I was like, who had time? Who had time to like, be like, well, I think you should be a doctor and, you know, let's talk about what you can do to build your resume. So they did. They all kind of went their own paths and you know, you could look back and say it's cuz we trusted them and and we knew it was the right yeah. thing to do. But no, no, it wasn't that. It was more like, "Mom, I want to get my license." "Okay, we'll go and fill out the form and then I'll take you to get your license." You know, it wasn't it wasn't like, "Let's sit down and all uh, the rest of you put everything on hold while I focus on <laughs> this child getting their license." Like <laughs> first of all, I'm not even sure where two of them are. <laughs> oh, that's one of my kids talks about being the lost child. Not lost physically, but lost like, "Wait, oh, one, two, three, four. Oh, <laughs> missing five. <laughs>
1: That's so funny.
0: Can we count off?
1: <laughs> oh my God. That is so funny. It is very interesting. And it is, I I I agree with what you said. Like some of it is, I don't know. I also think some of it's personality driven. And you and I have talked about this before. We've talked about it in the context of what's that thing called? Progress book, where like you could check your kids all of their things, and you're like, I couldn't do that, I was either all in or all out. I'm like, oh my God, that's me too. Like, so I just was all out because it would have been insane. Right, so maybe knowing
0: ourselves, like I never got the password, I never put it anywhere. And and when I went to, to right. meet with the college counselor, she was so irritated that I wasn't on Naviance. And she's like, come sit here and I'll show you how to do it. And I was like, no, no, this is on purpose. And she, she was like, what? What does that mean it's on purpose? I say, well, I'm, I'm not applying to college. My kid is. So I'm, I'm not. That is so funny. Now, I did go on Naviance. I will say that. That I did go on.
1: That I did go on. Okay, well, um, and if I'm going
0: to be honest, I'll tell you where I did helicopter. And that is what you were describing, like got better at it with each kid. But I definitely wanted to bandage the social wounds or mm. go in, not just bandage them, but find justice for my kids. Like I crossed those lines. But just with yeah. just with those older ones, because by after that it was like, Yeah, this is what happens. But before you know it happens, before you like yeah. experience those moments, it's like I don't I don't remember that happening to me. I'm sure it did. Based on my reaction, yeah. I'm a hundred and you know, million yeah, right. percent sure it happened to me. But um I just I just remember telling my husband a story of something I did to to uh, find justice for my daughter and him saying, way to be a middle school girl. And I was like, <laughs> wait, what? Was that not a compliment? No, and I really, I, I think I came home to brag to him, like about how I navigated this situation so seamlessly. And then his response was like, hmm, not so well. <laughs> Does it remind you of the story of what I thought you told
1: me one time to do oh my and what God. you really told me I to do. I think about
0: that all the time because, you know, it was such a funny, funny moment. <laughs> are mm-hmm. you going to tell the moment?
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, I have to, it's funny, I can, all I can remember is the feeling and the feeling of feeling so sheepish and I can't remember the details. But you I, like? think I, I remember some... all
0: the details. Would you like Okay, to tell Okay, you, you can tell it. Okay, so you called up and you said, this is happening with my kid and a friend. And I want to call the mom. What do you Mm -hmm. think? Which, of course, we'd already written a million articles about don't call the mom. So you knew the answer. So I'm like, "Ah, you know, I don't think it ever works out well. And you kept pushing and pushing like, yeah, but like, I don't know. I think this one's different, which, of course, every single parent thinks that their story (gasps) is special and that this one's different. So I'm just kind of listening to you talk through this. And then it was clear you were calling the other mother. Like you made it really clear that when you hung up the phone, you were calling the other mother. So I said, "Well, what do you like? What do you en- envision the conversation looking like if you call the other mother?" And this is so plausible because that sounds just like something you would say. Yeah, I'm and at all that moment, what you heard was Sue said, "I should call the other mother." <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wait! Not only did I hear that, but when it all went down, Todd said to me. So why did Sue tell you to call the other mother? Because that's
0: clearly what I told him. Like, I know, because didn't you told with me the that. story. You got it like Exactly. Sue, so, it didn't go well at all. I don't know why you told me to call the mother. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Still goes down as one of the funnier moments. It's a great story. <laughs> okay, we did not know we were going to unearth all of these things that we needed therapy for. But here we are today, Steph. Up next is our conversation with Julie Lifcott-Hames. We can't wait for you to join us.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard. And I'm here with my wife, Tabby.
2: We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system and know how tough it can be, but we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education.
1: That's why we started this podcast, to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children.
2: On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, The school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate for your child and yourself.
1: Whether you're a new parent or have been in the game for a while, we invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together.
2: even care if they are we are always unpacking that very question on sleepover cinema
0: check out sleepover cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at Evergreenpodcasts.com. see you soon
2: i'm Anne marie kelly
1: wild precious life is a podcast about dreaming big digging in and connecting across distance division and loss in each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave.
0: Julie lithcott Haymes is the New York Times best-selling author of the Anti-Helicopter Parenting Manifesto, How to Raise an Adult. Her second book is the critically acclaimed and award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American, which illustrates her experience as a Black and biracial person in white spaces. Her most recent book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, aims to help humans lead a more authentic adulthood. Julie, thank you so much for being here with us today. Okay, so Julie, you have on your website a commitment to inclusion, And it's very specific, clearly well thought out. Can you just tell us
2: what you mean by some of the things like write, publish, and promote inclusive books? Sure thing. So the commitment to inclusion really attends my new book, Your Turn, but is a reflection of my philosophy as a nonfiction writer. I'm a Black, biracial, queer person, and over these 53 years of my life, I've read way too many nonfiction books, and fiction books for that matter, that normalize whiteness and otherize the rest of us, normalize straightness and otherize the rest of us, basically by not listing a character's or a person's race, sexual orientation, gender, et cetera, et cetera, unless that person is non-white, non-straight, non-middle class. Okay, so I think 90% of the books I've read in my life do that. And I refuse to do that because I know what it's like to be a reader who sees that and says, "Well, they didn't have me in mind when they wrote this book. This book is clearly for other people." So that the commitment to inclusion partly reflects that concern in my attempt to address it. And so many works of nonfiction purport to elucidate a nonfiction subject that is for all, yet the examples are drawn from the community of white, straight, middle-class educated people, which is a group of people, but it's a narrow swath of the human community. So in this book, in telling the various stories that comprise the advice, a lot of the advice of your turn comes through stories, I said, I need to make sure that humans from so many different walks of life are in these pages so that every reader hopefully will have cause to feel seen also to demonstrate, look at how different we are, and yet look at how much we have in common. And that is probably one of the subversive themes running underneath this book on adulting. It's trying to move us forward as a society and say, look, we can write inclusive books. When we do write inclusive books, we discover that we are more alike than we are different, to sort of paraphrase Maya Angelou. And that's certainly an aspect of of my work as a someone who cares deeply about social justice. So
0: do you have to ask the other person how they want to be defined? Or is Absolutely. it- Absolutely.
2: Okay, you so can you're... never assume, you can yeah. never assume. You can't assume looking at somebody, what their identity is. So I've said to everybody who's who I interview, how would you like to be identified? What are the identities that comprise you that most matter to you that you would like to have included in these pages? Thanks, that's great. So you mentioned adulting,
1: which is what we're talking about today. So tell our listener what it means and why now, why are we so focused on this now?
2: Millennials began saying 15 years ago, I don't want to adult, I can't adult, adulting is hard, adulting is scary. And I'm someone whose career has largely been devoted to helping young people emerge out into their adult lives as a, I was a dean at Stanford for many years. And so my heart just was beating with concern and compassion for these young people who seemed to be expressing that they felt inadequate about moving forward in their life. And and this concern of theirs was in contrast to what we in Gen X felt about emerging into adulthood and what the boomers felt. I mean, the millennials were the first to say, wait a minute, this adulting thing, I'm not so sure. Whereas I think older folks were like, get me out of my parents' house So a lot has changed, and millennials were really the first to name it. The definition of adulting is simply, in my view, the stage of life between childhood and death. If you survive childhood, you are adulting. There's nothing mysterious about it. It is an emergence out of a dependent state. And we will likely return to a state of dependence at the end of our lives unless we Die quickly, we are once again in the end in the care of others who are more hale and hearty than we are. So, the adulting decades, we hope, are these long, sweet decades where we're in charge of ourselves. We can basically look after ourselves around our body, our bills, our belongings. You know, we can kind of take care of business. Doesn't mean we have to go it alone. In fact, humans need other humans. We just have to be mostly responsible for for ourselves, knowing that everyone else is too. That's what it means to be an adult. And in the book, I say to those skeptical, those readers, right, who don't want to adult, I say, believe it or not, this adulting thing, you'll want to. And I've tried to craft a book that demonstrates that adulting is freaking awesome. That it's great to not be held on somebody's hip like a child or held by the hand through life any longer. That there's a freedom to it and independence that is scary, yes, and delicious. What's holding them back? Well, a number of things. So childhood has really changed. I wrote about that in my first book, How to Raise an Adult. We have a closeness with our kids, which is beautiful, you know, in contrast to how Gen X grew up and boomers, parents of millennials, parents of Gen Z, we know our kids, we know their friends, we know their teachers, we know their assignments. We know the minutiae of their lives is a closeness and a bond that is beautiful. And sometimes it results in an encroachment of parents into the lives of kids where they're doing everything for them, handling the stuff of life, which has deprived kids of knowing how to do for themselves. It's like we've been treating our kids like they're these precious little toy dogs that we're going to always carry with us and forgetting that, no, no, you got to put the dog down and have confidence that, it, you know, it knows what to do. So I think that's one of the, the big causes of uh, why so many young adults seem to be struggling with adulting. But also, we've stopped teaching home economics in schools in a lot of places. We've stopped teaching shop, as we've become so focused on enriching academically and having the right extracurriculars to impress a college. We've stopped asking kids to participate in the work of family life, where they would learn to cook and sew, and iron and clean and f- and mend a tire, you know, wash the windows, fix the roof, fill out their own forms. Talk on the phone. Like there are just so many things kids aren't doing anymore. We're trying to absolve them of the work of life. And it turns out they've gotta do the work of life, not just the academic work of life, in order to how to in order to know how to lead an adult life. You know, we all can
0: probably think of the moment. Yours is in the book, the moment where we go, shit. There's no one here to do this. I am the adult. And so I, you, well, first of all, you call it tag, you it, which I love that. And I asked my kids because I thought, you know, did they have a moment where they knew they were an adult? And they gave me such lame answers. So I thought, Julie, do you know what
2: your kids would say is their tag, you it moment? First of all, I'm glad to know we can swear on this podcast because <laughs> um, I was trying to <laughs> modulate my language before it came out of my mouth. We try not to swear at each other, but otherwise you're welcome. (laughs) Operative words, try. (laughs) I don't know if my kids have had that moment. They're 21 and 19. They've led fairly privileged lives. Often we adult sooner in life when life has been more challenging. So kids who grow up poor, kids who grow up working class are often asked to, or made to grow up faster because they have to in order to, look after younger siblings they gotta help with that they've got to maybe make some food for the family maybe they have to earn money in order to support the family so in some ways they're not having to adult is very much a privileged thing and I think my kids I know my kids are definitely at the privileged end of the spectrum and and I don't know plus I'm their parent right just because I'm the person who wrote this book doesn't mean I can talk to my own kids about this stuff. If I sat down and said, you know, have you had your tag, your adulting moment? They would probably be like, oh, mom, are we talking about your work again, right? This is my work.
0: Here's what my kids said. One of them said, kill a spider. Uh <laughs> and um one of them said one of them said mm. like having to go to the doctor alone like at college and what that navigation was and then I had to remind one kid after she graduated college we went out for coffee the first time I visited her and she turned to me and said so do do I pay for my own coffee now and I was like, first of all, I loved it. I thought it was so sweet. But also, that moment is a moment where you're considering, am I actually fully? <laughs> I, I love those, those are lame. Movies. I love
2: those. Yeah, no, they're not lame. The spider one is, um, you want to be like, oh, honey, yes, that is a metaphor for adulting, <laughs> but not actually adulting. But making your own doctor's appointments or going to the doctor by yourself for the first time, that's certainly... A milestone. You know, you you go from a child taken to the doctor by a parent who, by the way, sits in on your doctor's appointment with you. And hopefully that has stopped by your teenage years because your body and your issues and concerns are private to you. It's not supposed to be parents' business. We're supposed to be making that shift, and go off to college, make your own appointments, and meet with the doctor on your own. That's great. I think that is an adulting moment, as is that question of, do I pay or do you pay? You know, I had a big adulting moment. I had a fire in my moving van happen when I just graduated law school. I'm married two years. My new husband and I, now my life partner of 33 years, we're moving from Massachusetts to California. There's a fire in our truck. I get a call telling me that that turned out to be... Looking back on it, that was like, okay, crap. Yeah, I where are the adults? Oh crap, it's me. That was my adulting moment. But just because I had a moment, doesn't mean everyone has a moment. For many people, it will be the accretion of experiences like the ones your kids shared with you. And frankly, my own daughter just she's nineteen, she just texted me. We have a, a place three hours north where we can go on weekends, and she's quarantining there with her boyfriend right now. She just flew home from college, quarantining with him. And she texted me and she's like, mom, I should have asked you, am I paying for my food while I'm up here? Or is that? And I was like, that's a great question. We will pay for your food as if you were in our home now, but anything that's entertainment and your gas to and from this place, that's on you. And I decided, cause she didn't need to go three hours away, right? She's I wanted to just create that divide, like what we should be responsible for and what you should be responsible for. And she said, terrific. You know, that's really helpful. Thanks.
1: I love that. I love that she asked, right?
2: Yeah. That she's thinking about
1: it. So in your book, so you end each chapter with
2: stories. Can you tell us Casey's story? Yeah. Casey grew up in Atlanta, a fairly privileged white dude. I heard about Casey because Casey's mother reached out to me through a friend of a friend and said, I know you're a writer. My son is in jail in prison, and he's trying to do something with his writing and wondering if you would have any advice for him. And I've always rooted for the underdog. I've always, when I went to law school, it was to help kids in juvie or kids in the system. I've always been an advocate for those on the defendant side of the line because I just believe we all have a story and we all have reasons we are the way we are, and I have a lot of compassion for people who are in a bad situation so i uh, I ended up meeting Casey over you know email and and learning about Casey. and when it came time to write this book, I thought, "Oh my gosh, I need Casey in this book." and Casey was uh, doing a lot of drugs in high school and selling drugs, and one day got busted and went off to prison as he was turning eighteen and was in a prison with men and was terrified and nothing terrible happened to Casey in prison and none of the stereotypical things you might be worrying about as i say this emerged thank goodness and Casey at one point ended up writing up his story his reflections on the life he had led and he presented it at a podium to this block of men i think 300 guys and um, just trying to come to terms with the choices he'd made and the life he had led and the life he wanted to lead and the man he wanted to become. And he was just, he described sort of, you know, holding himself up, like shaking and crying. And when he's done, these men get to their feet and applaud. And he just felt such connection and he felt so seen. And of course, many men came to him and said, will you help me tell my story? And many of them couldn't write. And so they couldn't, you know, he had to listen to them tell their story and then he would write it out for them. And he heard them on the phone telling their stories to their loved ones. And so it became this thing, like Casey was using narrative to heal himself, to be in community with others, to help others know themselves more deeply, and to help others then share their truth with further others which is what I'm trying to do in this book. So Casey's story is in some ways a microcosm of what the entire book is trying to be. And the more vulnerable we can be with ourselves and with each other, the more we can connect, feel less alone, more seen, more supported, and help others on their journey. Okay, so
0: I'm just gonna finish this story because in it, what struck me was how much he felt like he didn't belong as a child. He didn't belong anywhere in his adolescence, So many of the stories are about feeling like you don't belong. Is that a necessary part of growing up? Or is that something that we're just not doing well enough to make kids in high school, in college, wherever they are, feel like they belong? Because so much of the tragedy happens out of feeling like you don't belong.
2: Yeah, I really love that you're drilling into that, Sue. I think, in my experience, belonging is something we search for externally and then ultimately find it internally. And I will tell you that once you know you belong to yourself, meaning you know who you are, you know what you want, you know which identities you're claiming, you're choosing to be in work and community where you can be cherished and respected, then you belong anywhere because you're right with yourself. So I think it takes many of us decades if ever many don't do the work to know themselves that lovingly but when we do we find belonging everywhere so i do think it's a natural part of the human experience to struggle every kid is looking for validation from family from peers and so on that's you know i'm not a, a psychologist i'm not a sociologist anthropologist like i i don't know the why behind that but it's clearly real right kids Peer pressure, needing the validation of peers, is something we just accept as a given fact of life. And I think that's, in some ways, the you know it's in the same bucket as belonging. We are looking to know we matter to somebody somewhere, and the struggle for that is real. And often we make terrible decisions in furtherance of belonging, and um, often we we do things we regret and. Or can laugh about later, all you know, in search of the self, ultimately, in search of the self.:
0: That was beautiful, okay, so this one is funny. I love this one. <laughs> Stop pleasing others. They have no idea who you are. So I really love that title. I love the idea behind it, but it's harder than most of us think, and uh, I'd love to hear your story. You shared it the other
2: night. <laughs> <laughs> about your want, where you wanted your daughter to go to college and how that went. <laughs> oh right, right. Well, first I want to say you've noted a couple of my chapter headings that that have delighted you, and I'm glad because I've really tried to use chapter headings as little fish hooks to be enticing, like tag your it. The terror and joy of offending for yourself. Stop pleasing others; they have no idea who you are. This book purports to be about a lot of things. Other people would have written the book and give it the chapter fending for yourself, or forming your work and personal identity. And, you know, that's the about of those two chapters, but I just tried to go for something a little bit more interesting. My daughter, Avery, 19, previously mentioned, I, you know, I know a lot. (laughs) Like all parents, I think I have a lot of good ideas. Plus, I'm 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 a former university dean, so I know a lot about university, the undergraduate experience, what makes a college experience rich and wonderful. I know it's essential to find fit and be- so that you can achieve a sense of belonging. Don't just go to the place everybody's applying to. Even if you get into that place that's on everybody's list, you know, ask your gut, am I going to thrive there? Can I be myself there? Um, doesn't matter how high a place is ranked, if you don't feel like you can be you there, go running in the opposite direction. So I have a lot of opinions about this subject, have counseled thousands of other people's kids about this. And so my own kids coming up in the process, I want to, of course, help them and steer them toward what I think is the right fit for my children. I Yes, I realize the irony. I had already done a pretty good job of steering my son toward the small liberal arts college I thought was perfect for him, which turned out not to be. But he didn't know that until two years in. And so he is, anyway, so there's that. So I've, my track record is like zero and one. And then with Baby Girl, I am certain my daughter, who's an artist, who cares so deeply and passionately about fairness and justice. It just calls it out. I mean, it's just, I'm sure she should go to Oberlin. I love Oberlin. It's one of those wonderful small liberal arts colleges. It's in Ohio. One of my siblings went there years ago, was actually on the board of trustees for a while. So I thought we might have an in there. Right. So I'm like, but that that was just sort of icing on the cake. So I'm starting to tell Avery about Oberlin. And finally, I, I have this look on my face one day where I'm like, so Avery, you know, I was, I, I was thinking, da, da, da. And she's like, are you going to tell me about Oberlin again? Because <laughs> apparently I by now had this Oberlin face, which just like the face I wear when I'm going to try to tell about Oberlin. So she basically put her hand up and said, like, stop, I'm not going to apply to Oberlin. So then as I'm giving my How to Raise an Adult keynote talks at schools around the country, which is, you know, a big part of my work, I start telling this story. And then I say to people, so... If somebody here in the audience wouldn't mind giving my daughter a call and telling her about Oberlin, I'd really appreciate it. Because <laughs> I do think it would be a great place for her. And she just won't listen to me. Well, this story now has a footnote. She just finished her sophomore here, not at Oberlin. And you know what she said to me? You know what, Mom? I've been learning about Oberlin. <laughs> and I think that might have been a good fit for me. <laughs> Which is not to say she doesn't love where she is, But she has come because other people, she has seen other evidence in life that did not come out of her own mother's mouth. So Julie, Julie, what's your takeaway from this? Be much more subtle when you're trying to give your kids advice. Like I should have just, you know what I should have done? I should have been like, oh my God, Oberlin, I would never want a kid of mine to go there. You know, it doesn't go together though. Parenting and subtlety. I know. It just doesn't. You know what? I joined the Mormon <laughs> church to rebel against my family. So I full well know this is um something I have written about in, in my second book. I came from this liberal family, very, very liberal. You couldn't be liberal enough. And I was like the model child who always got the straight A's. All my older siblings were dealing with issues that, you know, were you know, very struggles in life, but somehow I was like the youngest and things appeared to be fine for me. And my, uh, I I was dating this dude who was Mormon, in, in my all white high school, I'm black and biracial, and I'm the only kid of color in 1,200 kids school. And I fall in love with this guy. He falls in love with me. We are transgressing the norms of both of our families by being together. And you know, Mormonism is a is a religion that is is not just sort of one hour on a Sunday. It's a it's a life. A lifestyle, a way of being. And so they were inviting me to go to church or go to these things. And my parents were alarmed because they were like, Mormons haven't accepted Black people to be priests until five years ago. Like, don't do it. And the more my parents said, don't, 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 I was like, try and stop me. Try and stop me. So I know that kids want agency and want to be able to make their own decisions. You try to clamp down, they're going to say, watch me do this. That is precisely what I did. So I tried to parent differently. I tried to sort of hold them gently so they wouldn't feel the need to like rebel. But my manner of parenting, other than like this, please go to Oberlin. I've been fairly soft with my advice. I think, you know, I, I didn't get it right. It's hard when it's your
0: expertise, right? Like everyone else is asking for your advice and then you got to say, I won't give it here. So
1: you've identified six steps for young adults to get the conversation
2: started with their parents. Will you go through those with us? Sure. So uh, young adults, by definition, to be adult is to make one's own choices and make one's own way, get advice and guidance, and of course, be in community with others. But you're forging the path. The path is made by walking and it's yours to forge. And I think in some senses, a beautiful definition of adulting is you've decided you want to go in this direction. And even if the people who love you most don't agree, you do it anyway. I mean, that's the, that's sort of like, you know, the example I just gave of like, fine family, I'm going to join this church and it's not up to you. It's up to me. Short of the rebellious act, we're trying to have thoughtful conversations with our family because they do love us. They do care about us and they do have a lot of of a lot of ideas and values related to who we should be, what we should study, who we should be in relationship with. And young people need guidance about how to have a mature conversation with their parents, a mature conversation. I didn't mean to say immature. And so I've laid out these six steps that I've shared with kids countless times in assemblies over the years, and it boils down to this. Number one, ask your parents, hey, could we set aside some time this week to talk And that will set them back on their heels and make them worry that you're going to tell them something awful. So they'll be paying attention and they'll say, yes, it's also a demonstration of maturity that you haven't just dumped this conversation onto the dining table one day when you're having dinner. So you're asking for time. Then you're sitting down at the appointed time and you begin by offering respect and praise and love, whatever language your family uses around that concept, use it. If you say love in your family, like, I love you. I know you love me. Thank you so much for, you know, all you've done, right? Or I respect you. I know you've always wanted the best for me. You've raised me with great values. Whatever the kid can offer by way of praise to the parents, they should do. So it's ask for time, offer praise. Step three, frame the subject. Parents, I'd like to talk with you about fill in the blank, you know, what I'm going to major in, what school I'm going to go to what I'm going to do for work after I graduate, you know, which graduate school I'm going to attend, you know, who who I'm interested in dating, whatever the subject might be, frame it, and say to the parents, I'd like you to go first, because I really want to know what you think about these things, and then I'd like to share what, what I've been thinking. So that's step three. Step four, the parent goes and tells, you know, what they think, and we've always known, or we've always wanted, or we've always talked about, or you can do anything, honey, but we just want, you know, whatever the parent's going to say, Number five, the kid actively listens, reflect back to the parents what they've heard without judgment, without defensiveness, and say to the parents, did I get that right? Did I did I miss anything? And then finally, step six is where the kid f- begins to share their own thoughts on this subject. You got to go through steps one through five to create the container into which step six, the kid's own opinions about what the kid wants to do with their life can be poured. By going through steps one through five, the kid has greatly enhanced the likelihood that the parents will listen, that they're, they've are they slowed down enough, they're paying attention, they've had all of this stuff kind of set the tone and the context, it's all been respectful, quite mature, even if the parents don't understand it, don't agree with it, da-da-da, they can't help but feel, wow, you know, this is important to my kid, they've been so mature, I'm impressed with how they handled it. All of which are more likely to get the parents more on board than they would have otherwise been. Is there? I want to throw in one, Sue. That wasn't
1: on here. Is there one particular step where you see young adults trip, getting tripped up, repeatedly out of your six steps?
2: I don't ever see this in person, right? I don't, so I I can't answer it from that perspective. I imagine the first step of how to initiate the conversation is quite a stumbling block. Because it is different from, if you think about it, it's really a reframe of the parent-child relationship. Often it's parents who are saying, we need to have a talk, you know? And it's the kid who's on the defense of like, you read my mind. I was thinking that as you said it. And that is why it ends up being this tremendous demonstration of maturity. Because the kid is saying, essentially, I am old enough now. I am at an age and stage where I can ask you for time and tell you I have something on my mind. We need to talk.
0: Okay, so it's a role reversal in other ways, too, because for 14 years, when I've said something to my kids, they've said to me, oh, my God, who did you talk to today? What book did you read today? So now kids are going to do this, and the parents are going to go, did you read your turn? (laughs) I read it, too. I know what's coming. (laughs) Uh,
2: Okay, so there are so many really captivating stories in your book. Does one stand out for you? So many do for different reasons. So I think, as I've said, I'm an African-American, Black biracial person, and I have always intended that this book would be deeply inclusive of so many different walks of life, as we've already discussed. And there is a person toward the back of the book in my chapter on Unleash Your Superpowers, Mindfulness, Kindness, and Gratitude, and his advice, or how he lives his life and furtherance of that is there. But he's also in the prior chapter, how to cope when the shit hits the fan. Because he's a when he was a young Black male on a predominantly white college campus, he was at a frat party, a fight broke out, somebody called the cops, and when the police came, they surrounded only him as if he was the problem. And they had their guns drawn on him. And he was an undergraduate in college. And that's a circumstance that he endured and had to process and deal with and learn from and ultimately heal himself from. I have that story in this book because it's not a unique story. And unfortunately, there are a whole lot of folks who, on the basis of their externally perceivable identities, can be mistreated in the world. And that's something a human has to deal with, particularly as they become more adult. If you wear a body that others perceive as a threat, you got to know how to deal with that and how to heal yourself from those situations when they happen. So, you know, is this book about Black Lives Matter? No, it's about All Lives Matter. But I'm trying to pr- prove that in order for All Lives to matter, we got to put All Lives on these pages. The book opens with a story from Appalachia a white kid raised by a mother addicted to opioids. And that's another story ripped from the headlines, if you will. So no, I don't. I don't have a favorite. Um, they're they're all there to serve their own purpose, and I think different readers are going to resonate with different stories. So if you could
1: only pick one chapter from the book, which one would you pick to tell someone to read? They only had time to read one. I reject the
2: premise. You <laughs> right? I mean, wouldn't say that about a novel, right? Okay, which chapter are you going to read? So as the author, I'm going to reject that out hand, out of hand. You know, just like, no, that I would say that's a dumb idea. Don't do that. But I will say this. So I would then be thoughtful and say, you know, if I knew anything about the person, I might say, well, look, I know you have really been dealing with a lot in terms of understanding how your mind and body work and just knowing that self and and validating what you deal with and chapter nine take good care of yourself is really gonna i think hold that mirror up to you in a loving way and help you like rooting for you to continually know and accept and handle and manage and support that self if it was somebody who's like, I you know, I'm from a family of dancers and doggone it, I want to go to law school and I'm tired of these artists telling me that law isn't a valid pursuit. I mean, it rarely happens that way, right? It's usually the opposite. I'm from a family of lawyers and I want to be, you know, and I would tell that person struggling to study the thing, do the work that their family doesn't get, I would steer them to chapters five and six. We've already alluded to Chapter 5, Stop Pleasing Others. They have no idea who you are. But Chapter 6 is its companion, Get Out of Neutral. It speaks to why you might be stuck. Why can't you dislodge yourself from this place of limbo and so, you know, I would recommend that. So it really does depend on the person. To another person, I would say, you know what? Go to every go to the back of every chapter and read the one, two, three, or four stories that end this chapter because some people just want storytelling and they could get so much just by reading the 31 stories that are in these pages. Someone else, I would say, just read every, almost every chapter has some self-help tips. The 16 tips for this, the 12 tips for this, the five, just read the tips. It it, it speaks to what somebody's learning style is. So, you know, there's a lot in this book and I'm just hoping that people will get out of it what they need. As I've said, it's like a mirror. It's holding a mirror up to them. They're going to take away, they're going to pay attention to the bits that, you know, show them more about who they are and who they want to be. Oh, that's well said. All right, so we're going to end with the question that
1: we ask all of our guests. What is the biggest myth about raising teenagers? I don't
2: know. I love teenagers so much. <laughs> I think the biggest myth is that they're arrogant, obnoxious, um, manipulating us, problem, all that negative stuff. I just know that a teen in our society is desperate for conversation that makes them feel seen. Too often, it's like, you know, how many APs do you have? Are you taking the SAT or the ACT? Are you applying early? It's treating them as if these very private things, their academic transactions and outcomes are our business. And it's treating them as if that's all we care about. But if you can sit down with a teen who you haven't seen in a while, like your niece or nephew, or nibbling, or your um, best friend's kid, or you know a neighbor's kid, or your own kid. It's hardest with our own kids, right? But if you can sit down and just casually, in body language and look on your face, say, "Hey, you know, it's so good to see you. What's good in your life these days?" And look and lean in with your spirit, you know, and pause that will be a delicious offering for a kid. And in my experience, more often than not, and this happens to me, I go to people's houses and I have conversations like this and the parents are nearby and they're like, how did you do that? What were you doing? Like, I can't believe she stayed and hung out with you for 45 minutes. Right. And I try to say, and it's hard if it's a friend, cause I don't want to critique them, but I'm like, I'm trying to treat your kid like a human being. You know, whereas when I came into your, when your kid came home, you were like, have you started your homework? When are you going to do your homework? How much homework? You're like, stop. Shut up. Talking about that stuff. Act like your kid is a human being. You actually respect and are curious to know more about and watch how your teenager will open up like the most beautiful blossom to you.
0: All right, Julie Lifcott-Hames, I feel like we could do another few hours with you and still
2: not run out of things
0: to talk about. Thank you so much for being here with us.
2: Well, I love who you are. I love your teen. I appreciate being on this journey with you to help parents better support their kids. I mean, that's we all want our kids to be healthy, thriving adults one day, and I appreciate your work in that regard, and thanks for having me on the podcast.
1: Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com.
0: If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more
1: from us at yourteamag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.
0: Your team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer, Michael D'Aloya, plus producer, Hannah Leach, and audio engineer, Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time.